Well, I told Paul something that uh, he didn't know until uh, the early service, which is kind of neat. When he was talking about the crazy week that we had, uh, he didn't mention uh, mine and Pam's trip to Indiana. We went to the central part of the state last weekend and spoke uh, a couple of times up there. And Sunday morning in the combined uh, worship service that we had there at the the fair grounds, uh, Alex... uh, um, McFarlane was one of the speakers, and then myself. And between us, we were just visiting, and I visited with a guy whose name is Jeff Wise, and I'd never met Jeff, and Jeff said, are you the Dan Fisher that I hear on the radio? And I said, well, I would imagine there's only one of us, so yeah, it's probably me. And he said, well, my wife told me that we had some special guests speaking today at this event, but she didn't tell me it was you. Well, it turns out, Paul, that that Jeff is a farmer in central Indiana, and during the day when he's out working in his farm truck or driving a tractor, he listens to you and me every day. Because, you know, our sermons are on, uh, on the air. And he said, every day I look forward to that period of time when I can tune you guys in. Now, I have never met him, and now I feel like I've known him all my life. And so I, I, I shared that this morning to encourage Paul. You know, there are people all over the country. Who knows? But I want to share that to encourage you. Because your gifts may be different from ours, but we're all a part of this together. And so though you may not be the one actually speaking on that program, you are speaking on that program. You see, as we together give our efforts and our resources and and we're part of this body, you're as much a part of blessing that farmer in central Indiana as Paul or I am. And so I just wanted you to know what a blessing that was for me to hear his testimony. And I wanted you to hear it because I wanted you to know that your efforts are reaching people you can't possibly imagine. And it reminded me of a couple of things that morning. It's just a blessing to me. One, it reminded me that our lives count. Your life counts. You are making a difference in people's lives. But the second thing that it reminded me of is you may never know the people that you touched. Now, I happened to cross paths with Jeff, but had I not been at that event and he had not been at that event, he would still be listening to us, being blessed and maybe encouraged in his walk with the Lord, but I wouldn't meet him till heaven. And so you never know. First of all, your life does matter. And secondly, you may never know this side of heaven just who you have blessed. People are watching your life and your life matters. You may not be on the radio. You may not be on television. We don't have a platform like somebody like Billy Graham had. It doesn't matter. Be faithful with what God has given you. Partner with others. And together, we will reap the harvest. And so I just, I just wanted you to know. Well, there are a lot of things going on in America that, of course, give us great concern. And kind of uh, as, a, as a, a beginning today, I, I wanted to share with you the story of someone who desperately needs our prayers. Uh, this is Baronel Stutzman. Baronel is a florist in Richland, Washington, the state of Washington. And in 2013... She had a couple of homosexual men that she actually has known for a long time and has done business with come to her and ask her to do some floral arrangements for their marriage. These two homosexuals were going to get married and for their wedding. And she said, I can't. That compromises my Christian faith. Well, the, the uh, a prosecutor, I think it's the attorney general of the state of Washington, sued her. And she's been fighting in court since 2013. Now, here's the bad news. On July the 2nd, the U.S. Supreme Court, she exhausted everything she had in the state of Washington. On July the 2nd, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear her case. That means that the next lowest court's decision is left to stand. And that court's decision was she had violated the civil rights of those two homosexuals. And so she's going to have to pay fines. And I would assume if she doesn't make the flowers for the next couple, she will be sued into oblivion and lose her business. We need to pray for people like this on the front lines because most of us will probably uh, never meet Baronelle. We will probably never know her. But she is a fellow sister in Christ.
who is now probably facing the end of her business career because our stupid court system uh, rules in the way it does. And here's the thing. Notice the courts are already calling sexual choice a civil right. Now, the Equality Act would actually ensconce that in law, but the courts are already ruling that way, and her case is just such an example. So while we had the victory with Tony Spell in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, we now have the defeat of this poor florist in the state of Washington. And of course, the baker in Colorado, I believe it's in Colorado, too, Colorado, New Mexico, he's now being attacked again, and they're after him. And so most likely because of this decision, he's going to lose as well. So the fight is ever on and we must be vigilant. Now from the serious to the stupid. This is a Washington Post story. If you can believe it, they're claiming that birds are racist. Now I don't know. I mean, you got red birds, blue birds, brown birds, black birds. I don't know, but they're claiming that birds are racist. Actually, what they're saying is over the years, the labels of different kinds of birds, the different parts of them, some of those labels have been invented, I guess, uh, by those who were racist. Therefore, birds are racist. So this week... If a bird is mean to you or smarts off to you, just grab him and twist him till his head pops off. I mean, he's, he's racist. And, um, and then here's another one. I don't know if you know, but the National Geographic is keeping us up to speed. July the 5th, just a few days ago, uh, they have determined that 4th of July fireworks are also racist. Now, if you'll, if you'll see the, the, the subtitle here, scientists found that vulnerable people and communities of color are disproportionately exposed to air pollution from firework celebrations. I'm telling you, if it wasn't so sad, it'd be hilarious. These people are nuts. So we live in an upside down world, don't we? And I think this is one of the reasons why I felt drawn to preach the message that I'm going to preach today. Because it's a crazy world. Sadly, though, the craziness isn't restricted to just outside these walls. My experience as a believer and then as a pastor and a spiritual leader has led me to come to the sad realization that many Christians are also affected by the thinking of the culture, even within the church. And so today, I want to I preach a message to you. It's probably more like a lesson than it is a message, but you receive it however uh, God delivers it to you through me. But I want to talk today about what is often called sufficiency of Scripture. And I want to I deal with the question, is Scripture enough, or do we need something more? Now, here's the reason I'm asking that question. And here's the reason, or one of the reasons I'm preaching this sermon. In the months that I've been teaching on angels, both faithful and fallen, I'm finally coming to the end of that series. And I'm in the very last lesson, and we're dealing with demonic possession and exorcism and spiritual warfare and our defense against the powers of darkness. But in preparation for teaching that lesson, I've had to do study, obviously, as you would. And I've been reminded of all of the extra-biblical craziness that goes on among believers. And it's not just in certain circles like the Word of Faith and others. I have found it to exist among regular Christians like us. There are many things that we've been led to believe, either consciously or unconsciously, that I believe negatively affect our lives. So, for instance, do you have any friends or do you know of anyone who's always telling you about some vision that the Lord gave them? Or some special message that God gave them in a dream that they had? Or how about these people that are always hearing from God? God's always telling them everything. I'm even down to the part, point that some of them seem to believe that God told them whether or not to have a Big Mac or a Whopper for lunch. I mean, I, I know people that just seem to hear from God all the time. God's telling them stuff. And, and apparently, He communicates in such a way that it's practically audible. 
Now, here's the deal. I don't have that stuff. I'm not constantly hearing from God. I'm not having visions and dreams. I don't have these special visitations. Jesus has not shown up in the uh, passenger side of my pickup as I'm driving down the road and strikes up a conversation with me. I haven't had any of these experiences. But you know what? I find myself in pretty good company. Because when you read about the men who were closest to Jesus, the apostles, they had very few of those experiences themselves. Very few visions, very few of these supernatural experiences. And they were the apostles who had the sign gifts working among them to prove to the pagans that they were going out to planting the New Testament church among to prove their validity. Just like Peter says, Jesus worked miracles to prove that he was who he claimed to be. That's why he worked those miracles. Now, he loves people. He wants to see them healed. But if Jesus came primarily to heal people, he was not a success. Because there's a lot of people he left unhealed. And being the Lord, he could have healed everybody. Why didn't he? Uh, Being the Lord, he could have cast out every demon there was. But he didn't. Well, obviously, that was not his ministry. And ultimately, that is not the goal of the church. Certainly, we want to see people healed. We pray for sick people. James tells us to pray for them. We want to see people released from different kinds of spiritual bondage. But in the end, it is not this three-ring circus that you often are led to believe Christians ought to be experiencing, especially if you watch any Christian TV or listen to much Christian radio. If you read a lot of books, if you go to a lot of Bible bookstores, Christian bookstores, you'll see just tons of books, shelves filled with all these books about victory over this and deliverance over that and how to hear the voice of God and and visions and dreams. And yet some of the greatest Christians I've ever known didn't experience any of that. Well, that's because I think most people don't. In fact, I don't think that's how primarily God works. I think God primarily communicates to us through His Word. Now, I am convinced that if God needs to speak to me, He can. There's been just two or three experiences in my almost 62 years where God really did get a hold of me in such a way I didn't hear an audible voice, but I didn't need to. God communicated to me so strongly That there was no doubting it. You know what those two were in my life? When I was saved and when I was called to preach. Other than that, I've not had these experiences that everybody talks about. And so I don't want you to feel like you're a second class citizen in God's kingdom if you haven't either. So I want to talk today about the importance of understanding the concept of the sufficiency of Scripture. But let me begin with a story. This story is of a man who was a Bible collector and a friend of his came to visit him and wanted to see some of his very rare Bibles. And one of the Bibles that he picked up was very similar to this one. That's, that's a Bible from the 16th century that you're looking at. Well, he picked up a Bible from that same period and as he held it in his hands, he realized that he was holding one of the earliest Bibles ever printed. But there was something very different about this Bible. Because the top third of it was stained with what appeared to be blood stains. The Bible had actually been tested with DNA, and the fact is, these were blood stains. Well, how did these blood stains get on one third of this Bible? Well, you see, during the period of time that the particular Christian that owned this Bible had been using it, a, a ruler of England named Bloody Mary launched a war against what we would call evangelical Christians. And they were literally murdering Christians who would not submit to the queen's church. And if you did not, you were murdered. And the soldier that would murder you would take your Bible, if you had it with you, and would literally dip it in your own blood after you had been murdered. A few of these Bibles have survived, and they're called martyrs' Bibles. And they have the bloodstains still on them. So I'm going to quote what this man said. I examined that Bible carefully, page by page. I could see where it was well worn from being studied. There were water stains as if from tears. 
and places where a thumb had frayed favorite pages. This was someone's most valuable possession. And their blood was there to prove it. That's how important the Word of God was to that person. They were willing to die for it. Willing to die for it. Some of the early men who had the audacity to print the Bible in English were murdered, martyred, because they had the audacity to print God's Word. John MacArthur, a a great Bible teacher I have a great deal of respect for, as you know, said this, God's Word is sufficient to meet every need of the human soul. Scripture is comprehensive, containing everything necessary for one's spiritual life. Scripture is surer than a human experience that one may look to improving God's power and presence. Scripture contains divine principles that are the best guide for character and conduct. Scripture is lucid rather than mystifying so that it enlightens the eyes. Scripture is void of any flaws and therefore lasts forever. Scripture is true regarding all things that matter, making it capable of producing comprehensive righteousness. Because it meets every need in life, Scripture is infinitely more precious than anything this world has to offer. Visions, dreams, audible voices pale in comparison to what you call your Bible. And yet most of us have multiple copies laying around our houses, many of them collecting dust, just deteriorating with age. But there are places in this world today where Bibles are illegal. And when a missionary is successful in smuggling in a Bible to those places, the people will take it and tear it apart, not out of anger, not to destroy it, but to distribute it. They'll tear these pages out one by one, And each person will take a page and they will read front and back and memorize that page. And when they're finished with it, they find someone else with a different page and they swap pages. Today we throw the Bible around like it's nothing. Now I'm not necessarily talking about the physical Bible. This Bible of mine, I've been preaching out of it since 1978 when Pam bought it for me. It's made out of leather. It's been rebound I think three times. It's just paper and some ink. But the truths in it, oh, (laughs) they're eternal. And they will liberate your soul. But we live in a day when people don't think that's enough. MacArthur tells the story. He said, I once agreed to debate a man who led an evangelical homosexual denomination. Put all those words together, right? I asked, what do you do with the Bible's condemnations of homosexuality as sin? Oh, come on, he said. Everybody knows that the Bible is psychologically and unsophisticated, reflecting the views of primitive thinking. The Bible is antiquated in its sociological theory. You cannot go to an ancient document like that or this and expect to deal with 20th, 20th, 20th century uh, social problems. The Bible ought to stay in its own environment. It needs to be updated with a contemporary understanding of psychological and sociological phenomena. Now, most of us in this room would probably not dare say that. He was right about one thing. The Bible ought to stay in its place. Here and here. Yeah, it ought to be there. But you know, unfortunately, many of us almost embrace what this man was saying in theory. Because what he was saying in theory is that the Bible is simply not enough. You know, there was a time when the battle was over inerrancy of Scripture. Is the Bible really the Word of God? Is it inerrant? You know, that battle apparently was kind of fought and won. But let me tell you what the battle is today. It's for the sufficiency of Scripture. Whether or not the Bible is enough or you need something more. You need a vision. You need a dream. You need a special word. You need an experience. 
I'm telling you, I, I, I am around a lot of people constantly, wonderful Christians, but they are always leaning on experiences, on feelings, what they think has happened to them, what happened to a family member, what happened to a friend. And unfortunately, they base a good deal of who they are as a Christian on those things rather than on what God's Word has already said. Now, the book of Psalms, chapter 19, I'm not going to read this whole passage, but in Psalm 19, 7 through 14, the psalmist is talking about how the law or the word of the Lord is perfect. It converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And then he goes on to say that God's word is more valuable than fine gold, sweeter than honey, right out of a honeycomb. And he draws the conclusion that there is nothing more important than what God has said in His Word. But unfortunately today, we are led to believe that there are other places to go. And you can't really be complete as a Christian if you don't have these other sources in addition to God's Word. And yet Paul tells a young preacher, who was actually at times a struggling preacher, probably we all are, Timothy. He tells Timothy in the second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, it's a verse you all know. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And what Paul is telling Timothy is, Timothy, if you want to mature as a believer, God's word will get you there. God's word is enough. You don't need anything extra. Peter writes the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. He warns us again that God's power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness and the knowledge that we have to have to have those things. Everything we need to be godly, God has already given us. So understand that you're not lacking because you may not hear these voices from the Lord all the time. Or you may not constantly receive visions or you don't have these spectacular dreams and then God uses those to give you special insider trading information. Or you don't have these elaborate experiences. Friends, you don't need those. In fact, I would argue that I suspect many of those are not from God to begin with. Now you say, Dan, are you questioning these people's honesty or Christianity? No, I'm not. I'm really not. But I also know that the enemy is incredibly smart. And he knows that if he can get us off chasing visions and dreams and special secret knowledge and information, that we'll spend so much time in that because it is so spectacular that we won't focus on what we know is from God. And by the way, I'd just like to ask, how do we know if a vision really was from God? What's the test? What does the Bible, does the Bible give us one, two, three, four, five? This is how you know if a vision is really from God. What about a dream? How do we know that that dream was really from God and not just our brains all scrambled up when we went to sleep? How do we know that that voice that we think we're hearing is actually the voice of God? What if we're not even hearing a voice? Or if we're hearing a voice, what if that voice is from the angel of darkness who disguises himself as the angel of light? It's worth asking, isn't it? So this is why to the believer... This concept of the sufficiency of Scripture is so important. So I just want to throw a few things at you here very quickly as we run through it. And I want you to consider them with me. First of all, I want you to consider this fact. When reading the Bible or Scripture, we are instructed to use our minds. In fact, I have a lesson that I teach entitled, It's Okay for Christians to Think. I mean, it's all right for you to think. Jesus says, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. Think. 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul says, Brothers, stop thinking like children in regard to evil be infants, but in your thinking be adults. Once again, thinking. 
Romans 11.25, 1 Corinthians 12.1, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Paul constantly says, I do not want you to be ignorant. Well, why were they ignorant? They hadn't had enough visions? Hadn't had enough dreams? No, they didn't know enough about God's Word. And so Paul said, you're ignorant of God's Word. And I don't want you to be ignorant. So Christians can think. But secondly... Thinking alone is not going to be enough. Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. In my class, I emphasize the point that he didn't say the spirit of kicking the demons in the mouth, punching the devil in the nose. He's not the spirit of healing. He's not the spirit of raising people from the dead. Oh, he can do any of that. But Jesus chose to call the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. And notice he says, when he comes, he will guide you into how to kick demons in the teeth and how to punch the devil in the nose. No, he said he'll guide you into truth. This is all a battle for the mind and heart. This is all about truth. It's a truth war. It's what we're facing right now in this culture. It's all about truth. It's not about homosexuality, lesbianism. It's not about adultery. It's not about lying. Oh, those are all symptoms. This is about truth and whether or not we receive or reject God's truth. It's as simple as that. So, intellect alone will not do it. We need the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us this. I'm not going to read this to you, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, look, the things of God are spiritual and you have to have spiritual discernment to be able to think on God's level. And that takes the Holy Spirit. So notice we ought to think, but we need help in our thinking. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes along. He will help you to understand what you need to understand out of God's Word. You say, but Dan, there's so much in it. Yes, there is. Well, Dan, you don't think that you've mastered everything in there? No, not by a long shot. But friend, I'm telling you, everything that I need to know is here. It's available for me. And what I can understand, God's Spirit will help me to understand. And I do not need visions, dreams, or special secret messages. All that I need is right here by the Holy Spirit's instruction. So this is critical. Number three. One of the biggest obstacles to understanding truth today is pragmatism. Now you say, well, what is pragmatism? Pragmatism is defining the truth as that which works. Is that which works. Now, I've used an illustration. So if you're in my class, you've already heard this. But there is a fairly well-known Bible teacher named Bob Larson. He's been around for a lot of years. And Bob now claims to be an expert on demons and casting out demons or doing exorcisms. And when Bob is asked, well, how do you know how to cast out a demon? He doesn't take you to a book, chapter, and verse in the Bible because there aren't any. You know what he does? He says, well, I asked a demon, and the demon told me. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. I've watched video where Bob Larson is actually talking to a person who he claims is demonically possessed. Maybe they are. I don't know. But this demon inside this person is talking and all this growling and all this stuff going on. And Bob says that he cornered up one of those demons. And in the name of Jesus, he forced that demon to tell him how to cast out demons. Now, I want to ask you this question. Don't demons serve the father of lies What would make us think that a demon would tell us the truth? I mean, why would Bob Larson think that a demon says, Oh, you got me. I'm going to spill the beans and tell Bob everything that Bob needs to know about how to defeat the demon. I mean, come on. Are they that stupid? Because if they are, this is easier than I thought, right? No, the truth is Bob doesn't know what he's talking about. And I can promise you this. Some special experience isn't going to necessarily tell you the truth. But you know what Bob and the others like him say? Well, it works. We've taken these steps and we do the abracadabra and the ziggity zaggity zook and it works and those demons leave. Well, how do they know the demons left? How do they know the demons aren't just yanking on their chain and just as soon as they act like they left, they go right back in. I mean, how do they know? They say, well, it It works. So it must be true. Friends, that is pragmatism. 
Left unchecked by the eternal perspective, this kind of thinking judges things in terms of short-range goals rather than those which are eternal. In fact, um, a Bible teacher who's now in heaven, R.C. Sproul, used to call this sensuous Christianity. Now, before you think wrong about it, let, 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 hear, let, let you hear him what he said. That is, he says, the sensuous Christian cannot be moved to service, prayer, or study unless he feels like it. The sensuous Christian doesn't need to study the Word of God because he already knows the will of God by his feelings. Now, I'm telling you, I hate to say this because someone in here may say, well, they're talking about me. Well, I'm not thinking of anyone. But I hate to tell you how many times, and it's over and over and over throughout the years, that I've talked to normal Faithful believers like yourselves, and yet I hear these things like, well, I feel this. Well, I think this is true because this is what happened to me, or this is what happened to my mother. Well, I believe this about that because I saw this happen. Friends, that's nothing more than sensuous Christianity. It's your beliefs based upon how you feel about something. That's nothing to build a life on. And it's certainly nothing to walk with the Lord on. Number four, Scripture is objective, not subjective truth. Okay, so let's define objectivity. Evaluating your life by Scripture. What is subjectivity? Evaluating Scripture by your life. You see the difference? I typically don't like it when somebody asks me, What's your life verse? Because I always say, all of them. All of them are like my life verses. Now, I kind of know what they mean. What they mean is, Dan, are there any special passages of Scripture that really kind of mean something to you and that you kind of use? Sure, I get that. But you see, there's a problem with this kind of thinking. And the problem is, I'm going to evaluate Scripture by how it affects my life rather than evaluate my life by how Scripture affects it. Does that make sense to you? And so we have Christians who are well-meaning who actually allow their experience to determine for them what the Bible says. And oddly enough, I've never heard of someone who had a life verse that said anything like dying for Christ, sacrificing for their faith, giving it all. Those are never the life verses. The life verses are always about blessing and plenty. Right? Those are the life verses. Well, have you ever heard anybody who had as a life verse, take up your cross and die for me today? That's their life verse. No, because that's not what we want. See, we want to hear those things that do what we want them to do. And see, we want our lives and our desires to dictate to us how God's word is going to affect us rather than the, the other way around. Number five, Scripture means what it says. Scripture means what it says. Even though Scripture contains metaphors, symbols, parables, it should generally be interpreted literally. Friends, I've had people over the years ask me, Dan, what do you think that says? It says what it says. Well, what do you think it means? It means what it said. Why do we have the idea that the Bible doesn't mean what it says? Now, yes, there are times in Scripture when you have to look up other passages of Scripture and you have to interpret certain symbols and and certain parables, but typically that's not that hard. You see, the Bible means exactly what it says. It isn't speaking in some kind of coded language. I mean, I think one of the worst things that's happened to us over the last 20 or 30 years is this Bible code thing that came out. Any of you know what that Bible code deal is? Where they've taken the original Hebrew and Greek words and letters and they've come up with the uh, mathematical equivalent to every letter and they've found that there's all kinds of prophecies embedded in the Bible. Things like the Bible predicted Adolf Hitler and the ordination of Paul Blair because kind of the same. And, and, you know... 
you know, all these deals, all these kind of predictions and all this kind of stuff, special secret knowledge that no one knows. Now, I don't know if God has written his word so that history is embedded somehow in a secret code. I mean, there's nothing too big for God. If God wanted to embed the history of the world in the white part of your Bible, he can do it. But let me tell you, every time that I've known of a Christian that ran into the rocks... In their, in their Christian journey, it was always from reading and quoting the white part of their Bible instead of the printed part. You see, it's that printed part that most of us have problems with. See, that white part, we can make it whatever we want it to be. But that printed part, now that can get a little dicey. Because sometimes that stuff starts to cut me a little and I don't like that. So that's why I would really prefer to just kind of Feel it. Just kind of go with it, you know. Well, this kind of means this to me. So, number six. You should always allow Scripture to interpret itself. The Bible will tell you what it means if you will let it. Let me give you a, a really wild example. In Revelation chapter 12, if you study the book of Revelation, you'll encounter this woman that wears a crown with 12 stars and she's clothed with the sun and the moon. And people have read that for years and thought, Sam Hill, who is that? And they're trying to figure all that. What is that? What kind of gobbledygook is that? And then they, they come up with some wild idea. Well, what that is, is that's the, that's the left arm of the image of Nebuchadnezzar sprained and up in a sling and then the right arm. No, it's none of that. You can go to the book of Genesis and the Bible defines who that woman is. It's Israel. It's as simple as that. Revelation 12 is defined for you in the book of Genesis with the dream that Joseph had. All you have to do is let the Bible interpret itself. So if there are difficult passages that you encounter... All you have to do is simply let the Bible tell you what it means. By the way, that practice is simply called the analogy of faith. Allow Scripture to define Scripture. If you do that, you don't go off into all of these doctrinal aberrations that will have you teaching things like you're saved because you're baptized. When the Bible makes it incredibly clear that baptism is the act of faith of a saved person. Right? But you see, if you just read the Bible and you just hand select certain passages and you don't let the whole Bible... By the way, there's a racist bird right there. I just want you guys to know. And he's going to burn in hell. Let me tell you right now. He's kind of hunt and pick and you, you find what... And you don't let the Bible interpret itself. You're going to come up with all kind of crazy stuff. And I have, I have and still know... Tremendous believers who have that very problem. Number seven, got to move quickly here. We must practice exegesis when reading the Bible or studying it, not eisegesis. Now, I don't mean to get into the weeds here, but I think it's important that you understand these concepts because I know a lot of Christians who violate this very thing. You say, okay, what is exegete and what is eisegete? What does that mean? Exegesis literally comes from a Greek word, and what it means is to pull out of. So when you exegete the Bible, what you're doing is you're simply pulling out of it what's there. Okay? That's the proper thing to do. Eisegesis is the exact opposite. Eisegesis is to read into the Bible things that aren't there. Now here's the problem. Most modern Christians are guilty of eisegesis and they don't even know it. They take verses of Scripture that don't even mean what they interpret them to mean. They weren't even written for that particular subject. And they improperly apply them and then come out with crazy beliefs that aren't even biblical. Now let me give you an example of something that we do all of the time that's really not totally biblical. All of us have either read or quoted, certainly around the 4th of July... 2 Chronicles 7.14. That's the passage that says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, seek my face, repent of their sins, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, cleanse their land, right? And heal their land. Okay, now there's some general truths there that I think would apply to America. But do you know that the average Christian American thinks that verse was written for America? That was written to Israel. 
God was speaking directly to the nation of Israel in 2 Chronicles 7.14, not the United States of America. You say, Dan, you mean then that we can't quote that verse over America? Well, the general principles, yes, but those weren't written to America. Those were written to Israel. Now, are there some truths there that could apply to us? Of course there are. But we have to be careful that we don't read stuff into the Bible that simply isn't there. Things like God helps those who help themselves. That's not in Scripture. It's not in Scripture at all. In fact, the Bible teaches God helps the helpless. And yet we read things in and many times they're far more damaging than just God helps those that help themselves. Number eight. A particular biblical statement may have numerous possible personal applications, but it can only have one direct meaning. Now, here's what that means. You can't take a verse of Scripture and say, well, here's what that means to me. No, whatever it means to you must be what it says to begin with, and what it means to you will be the same thing that it means to me. We can't have some personal take on the Bible. And yet I come across this all of the time of unbelief. Well, here's what that means to me. I don't care what that means to you. And you shouldn't care what that means to me. What we ought to want to know is what does that mean? Not what does it mean to me? Well, here's how I take that verse. It's one of the reasons why I never liked some Bible uh, classes that I attend because the teacher would read a passage of Scripture and then say to everybody, well, what does that mean to you? And I wanted to jump up and say, who cares? I'm in here to know what that means. And then everybody would would pontificate on what that verse meant to them. And we experienced mutually shared ignorance about the Bible. And everybody got the wrong idea of what that passage meant until somebody stood up and said, that ain't what that means. Here's what it means. So you can't have all of these different takes Now, can the Bible speak to you specifically in a special way out of a passage? Well, of course it can. Can God use a passage to kind of reach down and grab your heart and kind of twist it a little? Oh, of course. Of course God can. I'm not suggesting that God's Word cannot speak to you. I'm actually saying God's Word can speak to you. But what God's Word says to you about a particular subject, it will say to everybody else. So when these people say, well, now, you know, the Bible doesn't mean that about homosexuality. The Bible uh, Bible doesn't mean that. Well, then pray tell, what does it mean? If it doesn't mean that, then what does it mean? Because it lists that sin along with other sins, and it says if you live these sinful lifestyles, you're not going to go to heaven. How else do I interpret that passage of Scripture? Well, that's not what it means to me. Well, I don't care what it means to you. You see, what matters is what does it mean. And there are going to be a lot of people who will stand before the Lord someday. And they're going to discover that what it meant to them didn't matter. Because how they took it wasn't what it said. You say, well, that's right about those people that are sexually perverted. It's not just those people. How about people who think they're Christians and they're constantly stealing from people they do business with? You think thieves are going to go to heaven? How about people who call themselves Christians but they lie all the time and they misrepresent the truth? Because Paul says liars will have their part in the lake of fire. You see, we have to be very, very careful about personalizing scripture because we will always personalize it in our favor i want to do it don't you man i want to read this thing so i look the very best i possibly can i need all the help i can get i'm kind of like that guy in the movie the mummy if you've ever seen it where he's wearing a buddha and a star of david and a crucifix and all kinds of stuff and a guy in his position he can't afford to make anybody mad and he's just trying them all I need all the help I can get because I'm flawed. So I want to interpret the Bible that puts me in the best light. The problem with that is, is I'm not in the best light. And the only way I can get into the best light is to repent before God if I'm contrary to Him and get my life right and squared away.
But as long as I think I can have my own personal take on Scripture, I'll never come to the truth. Now here's a common statement right here. Personal views must be evaluated in light of outside evidence and opinion because we all bring excess baggage to the Bible. By the way, that's an incorrect statement. But you'll hear that all the time. They say, well, your problem is you're a Baptist, and so you bring your Baptist stuff to the Bible. Well, you can make that mistake. But what if the Baptists, as just a group of Christians, were right about a particular passage? Well, now, you know, we can't listen to you because you bring your Pentecostal baggage into this. No, that's incorrect. We don't worry about the excess baggage. What does Scripture say? Does Scripture teach that you're saved by being baptized, for example? Or does the Scripture say that you're baptized because you're saved? It's one or the other. It can't be both. Are you saved by works? Or are you saved to do good works? It's one or the other. Do you have the Holy Spirit when you are saved? Or are you saved and get the Holy Spirit later on? It's pretty important. We better know. And it doesn't matter what kind of denominational baggage you bring to the Scriptures. You better set that aside and find out what Scripture says. I'm telling you, I don't want to line up with the Baptists just because they're Baptists. If they're wrong, I'm ditching them. I mean, I've got a friend, Tony Spell, down there in Baton Rouge. He's a Pentecostal holiness, and I love the guy. But I I tell him, you guys are getting to heaven if you don't run past it, but I think you guys are going to run right by it. you got to set that Baptist aside. you got to set that Pentecostal, that method, whatever it is. Set that baggage aside. You don't need that outside. What does Scripture say? In the end, don't you want to know truth? I mean, don't you want to know what's true? I mean, I don't care what the Baptists say or what the Methodists say or what the Presbyterians say. It doesn't matter. I only want to know what is true. If it turns out the Presbyterians are right, I'll be one. I'll have to swallow a curtain rod and be really, really straight all the time. I can be a Presbyterian. I mean, the point is... I don't want to bend the truth to fit my prejudices is what I'm trying to say. We've got to be careful. We're almost done here. This is the last one. This is why we must utilize the ministry of God-gifted teachers. One of the greatest mistakes I believe that we've made over the years in the Baptist church is anybody who was really sincere, we stuck them in a Bible class and gave them a quarterly and said, start teaching. Maybe they didn't have the gift of teaching. Maybe they weren't supposed to be teaching. Romans chapter 12 tells us that there are all kinds of gifts. And we must use those gifts that God has given us. Ephesians 4 tells us that God gave certain gifted individuals to the church as gifts to the church. And we should utilize those individuals because God has especially gifted them with gifts like preaching. Gifts like teaching. Don't listen to these kooks who are always getting some special revelation on something. I'm telling you, there's enough on the printed page for you to deal with. You don't need extra stuff. And then James belts out a warning in chapter 3 verse 1. You should not aspire to be a spokesman for God. Because if you do, you will be held to a higher standard. Now, that's just simply my paraphrase of James chapter 3, verse 1. So is the Bible sufficient for you? Of course it is. Of course it is. Do you need some special vision tomorrow to know where God wants you to go? No. Just begin to read God's Word. Allow God's Word to permeate your mind and your heart. You don't need some dream. You don't need some vision. You don't need some audible word from God. God doesn't care whether you have a Big Mac or a Whopper. He doesn't care about that. You don't need a voice or a word from God for that. And yet you may laugh. But I hear people actually say, God told me that I needed to buy my groceries today or I needed to go here and do that. It's it's nonsense. 
The Bible, God's word, is sufficient for everything. I want to close with a couple of quotes, and then we'll pray. Bernard Ram, who's a great theologian and apologist from years gone by, as you can tell from the black and white photograph, said this, A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. God's word is alive. And then one last quote from R.G. Lee, the pastor from Belleville, I mean, Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis for many years, was the, the uh, pastor right before Adrian Rogers. He says, all of its enemies, that means the Bible's enemies, have not torn one hole in its holy vesture or stolen one flower from its wonderful garden, nor diluted one drop of honey from its abundant hive, nor broken one string of its thousand-stringed harp, nor drowned one sweet word in infidel ink. Friend, let me tell you, you're not simple-minded if you just rely on God's Word. You're simply minded on God's Word. As a man one time asked the question, where would you like to be if the Lord was to come back today? One guy said, well, I'd like to be in church praying. Another guy said, well, I'd like to be out soul winning. And different people gave different responses. And finally, one old boy said, well, I'd like to be standing on a King James Bible. They said, well, what in the world? Why would you want to be standing on a King James Bible if the Lord returned today? He said, well, the Bible says that heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. And so I want to be standing on a Bible. Well, he kind of had it wrong, but in a way, he had it absolutely right, friends. When everything comes apart around you, just stand on the Word of God. God's Word is sufficient for you for all that you're going to face. You don't need special revelations. You don't need visions. You don't need dreams. You don't need to hear audible voices of angels or God Himself. You can't even prove who they are anyway. All you need is what God has already said. And if you master that, my friends, which none of us really will, but if you set yourself to mastering that, I promise you, God will do amazing things in your life. Do not be swayed. Do not be fearful. Do not be made to think that you're a lesser Christian because you're not always receiving this stuff. You don't need that. You've already received the best and more sure word of prophecy that you'll ever receive. God's holy word. Stand on it. It is sufficient.